Good morning. Let's get started. I'm going to share my screen here. All righty, you should see the blank screen now. So when we left Jacob last week, he was on the run from his brother Esau. As we catch up with him today, we find him just arriving on the outskirts of Haran. It's midday, like around lunchtime, and he comes upon a large well covered with a heavy stone slab on top. He's an experienced shepherd himself, so he's shocked to find several shepherds loitering near the well with their flocks. And he asks, why aren't you watering your flocks and then heading right back out to pasture? And they explain that the stone on top of the well is so heavy, they wait until all the local flocks have gathered before they roll the stone away and water their sheep. And they are waiting on this shepherdess that's just coming down the path with her flock. They tell Jacob she is Rachel, the daughter of Laban. Jacob is thunderstruck. Not only has he found his kinfolk, but he's absolutely 100% bowled over by Rachel. So much so that in a surge of adrenaline, he moves that stone off the top of the well all by himself so she can water her sheep. He is completely overcome by emotion and he starts weeping as he kisses her. It's, it's quite a story of love at first sight. And notice the heroic act he does, just like his mother Rebecca did when she watered all those camels. Well, Rachel runs to tell her father, Laban, and Laban, remembering that last visit from Abraham's family, comes to greet Jacob and welcome him. I'm sure he was disappointed to find that Jacob was not bearing gifts. After hearing Jacob's story, he realizes that Jacob is, at least at the moment, penniless, but he allows Jacob to work for him as a shepherd for a few weeks until he gets his feet under him. Now, Rachel is not Laban's only daughter. She has an older sister named Leah. Your Bible probably says something like, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. What in the world does that even mean? Why does it matter if Leah's eyes are weak? Why, why say such a thing? And we, you know, try to fill in the gaps, and, and most folks will say, well, Leah, it means Leah was ugly while Rachel was beautiful but it doesn't say anything about being ugly. What does this mean? It, this is a perfect example of a place where you should think, hmm, this makes no sense. Maybe I should take a quick look at the underlying Hebrew to see if there might be a better way to understand this. So here's how I look this up. I first navigate to um, eSword, which is where I do all my research. And I click on the book of the Bible, Genesis. I click on the chapter 29. And then I click on the translation, uh, English translation I want to use to look this up. So I use the NIV, the New International Version. Uh, you can use any, any version. And I scroll down and find the verse I'm looking for. And here it is. I click on that verse. Genesis 29:17. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. By clicking on that verse, 
that will anchor the tabs to that verse. So no matter what tab I click on, it'll be right in that verse in that particular translation. Since I want to look at the underlying Hebrew, I need to go to a translation that has a little plus sign after it, which means that it has Strong's numbers. And there's several of them, as I mentioned in the Bible Tools um, you can, there's a King James version. There's several different versions that have Strong's numbers. The one I tend to use is the New American Standard Bible. So I'm going to click on NASB Plus, and you'll see it's anchored at verse 2917. And it has the verse, and Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face, which is how the ver- verse is um translated in the NASB, but there's these little purple numbers, and those little purple numbers are the Strong's numbers. So we want to look at two two words. We want to look at the word eyes, and we want to look at the word weak. Those are the, the key um, parts of this description of Leah. So we're going to go to eyes, and we're going to click on its um, Strong's number, which in this case is H5869. If I hover over it, uh, it will there will be a pop-up, which I can read right there. But if I click on it, then it appears in all of the different um, concordances and dictionaries. It's in the dictionaries part that I actually have um, on my screen. So I keep these particular dictionaries open. I keep, keep the Brown Driver Briggs, the New American Standard Exhaustive Concordance, I keep the Strong's uh, Hebrew and Greek dictionaries up, and I keep keep the ancient uh, Hebrew lexicon of the Bible. These other two are not applicable here. See, they don't have the little information symbol on them. That means they're not applicable to a Hebrew word search. And then I keep the complete word study dictionary open. Many of these are free. Most, Most of these are free. Uh, so if you have eSword, these are dictionaries you can download and have on your screen. So I always check more than one, but let's check, uh, first off, let's check the Strong's definition. So eyes, the base word is ayin, and it tells me it's a primitive word. It literally means eye, or it can be a metaphorical eye. It can also mean a fountain, as which is considered an eye of the landscape. That wouldn't apply here. It can mean affliction. It can mean outward appearance, um, color, conceit, content, countenance, like face, displease. It can have a very negative kind of connotation. It can mean eye or eyebrow or eyesight. It can mean face. Favor, fountain, furrow, like I guess furrowing your brow. Um, I don't know exactly how that would work. Um, It can mean humble, knowledge, look. See, there's a big, big range. So now my next question is, well, is it which one of these, um, knowing this range, that it could be any of these, which one of these is uh, most used. And so for that, I go to word study. Uh, First, I want to see how it is used in scripture. It says it's uh, an eye, a spring, or a fountain. It's used to refer to, it can refer to any aperture or source. 
and then it gives me examples of all the different ways it's it's translated in in the Bible, and and it can it gives me references, scripture references where I can go look those up. So it, this seems to track pretty closely with what we saw in Strong's, which I would hope it would. So it, it can mean an actual eye, the physical organ of sight, an eye. It can mean oversight by the Lord. It can mean being present with someone else. It can have something to do with the surface of the earth. But it also means the human face and general appearance. So um, the next question then uh, is how many different times is it translated in these different ways? For that, I go to the New American Standard Exhaustive Concordance because it shows me the count of each of the times it's translated these other ways. So I can scan these counts. I can see that it's this word, ayin, is translated as appearance four times. But it's translated as eyes 372 times, as eye 68 times, um, so and as sight 277 times. And all the rest of these are small, one-offs, one, three, one. So far, far and away, this, this word is translated eyes, eye, or sight. So that looks to me like a pretty strong vote for this needs to be translated as eyes, unless there's a, a good reason not to. So let's check that other word. Let's check weak. That's H7390. Let's click on that and take a look at the Strong's Again, we're just going to go through that same sequence. And it tells me that this word can mean tender, either literally or metaphorically. Uh, it can therefore mean weak because something that's tender can be weak or faint-hearted or soft. Um, so now that's very interesting. Uh, let's look at the word study. It's an adjective meaning gentle, tender, weak, indecisive. Those are all possible meanings. Um, it can be a desirable quality of meat for food. It can be weakness. Um, Leah's eyes were weak, comma, tender, character, speaking softly, gently, the way a mother sees her son as a tender, beloved child. Um, it indicates a soft or reconciling word. Uh, so that's that's interesting. Um, let's go back over to the NASAC and see how often it's translated in those different ways. And it this tells me that it's translated two times as weak and once as timid, once as tender one, three times as tender. So that's four as tender. Soft, another two times. So weak is, is not necessarily what we need to choose here. We get some other, some other good choices and looks like more times than not, it's translated tender. There's one other place that I look. And that is here at the ancient Hebrew lexicon. Um, and this goes back and tells me some of the more ancient meanings of the word. And, uh, and it looks, and look here, it says, uh, loins, which would be like, obviously, your genitalia is a tender place. Um, and then it says tender, tender, soft. So clearly, 
um, Tinder, it may be a preferred translation for this. So let's go back and take a look at what it might mean if we say, and Leah's eyes were tender, but Rachel was beautiful of form and face. If we put it all together within the context of the passage, it looks like a better translation might be that Leah looked at Jacob with tender eyes, meaning she was in love with him. She looked at him tenderly, while Jacob only had eyes for Rachel's beauty. And that makes far more sense in the context of this passage. And it would be exactly the kind of wordplay that Hebrew writers love to use. I don't think this is saying Leah was ugly at all. It frankly does not say that. I think it's saying Leah is in love with Jacob, but her love is not returned. And that totally fits with the rest of the story. So see how that works? I show you this so you realize this is not any big deal scholarly stuff. Don't be intimidated by guys that look like this. It's just exactly like using an English dictionary. You look up the word, you read the choices of the definitions, and you choose the best definition based on the context. And why this matters is because each person who reads the scripture brings their own insight to the story, along with the illumination of the Holy Spirit, who is always present with you when you're reading scripture. Your understanding is as valid as anyone else's. We did this simple research and were able to pretty quickly see that the word tender is a much better fit, giving the context of the passage. Whereas eyes needs to be left as it is. There was really not any reason to change that. So this is totally within your capability and your right as a thoughtful reader of scripture. I tell young women all the time, don't give your power away to older men. And that applies here as well. You are every bit as insightful as they are. So do this with confidence. So when it becomes clear that Jacob has no intention of heading back home anytime soon, Laban and Jacob sit down to negotiate a more formal working relationship. I'm sure it came as no surprise to Laban when Jacob, who is penniless and cannot afford a bride price, offers to work for seven years in order to marry Rachel. Laban agrees to these terms, and the passage says Jacob was so in love with Rachel that the years flew by. When he finally marked the last day off the calendar, Jacob went to Laban and demanded to be given Rachel as his wife. So Laban throws a big party and the happy couple goes off to their tent. Well, I figure it either was pitch black in that tent or Jacob was drunk as a skunk because he didn't realize until the next morning that Laban had tricked him. Laban had given him Leah, not Rachel. Jacob is royally ticked off, but Laban is cool as a cucumber and he says, well, we don't marry off our younger daughters until the firstborn is married. You may marry Rachel a week from now, but only if you promise to work for me another seven years. Oh, my goodness, Laban. But Jacob has no choice. He agrees to another seven years of indentured servitude. Now, these are not easy years by any stretch of the imagination. 
Laban is awful to work for, as you can imagine. He changes his, the rules all the time. He changes them on Jacob 10 times, Jacob says. And there's trouble on the home front, too. Jacob does not love Leah, but Leah is quite fertile and bears him four strapping sons in quick succession. Rachel is furious and blames Jacob for her inability to have kids. And in a now familiar move, Rachel gives her maid, Bilhah, to Jacob as a surrogate. And Bilhah has a couple of sons who are technically Rachel's property, so she gets to name them. Now, Leah gets alarmed because she sees her power base slipping away. She's not been able to conceive for a couple of years now. So she gives Jacob her maid, Zilpah, as a surrogate. And Zilpah has two sons. So we're something like eight or ten years into the marriage. And the second seven years are clearly up. They're, they're still in Haran. It's been, they've had at least seven years worth of kids already. So, you know, it's, it's time they're moving on. And Rachel is still desperate to have sons of her own. She and Jacob have been trying to get pregnant. Leah has been left out in the cold completely. Uh, and then Leah's oldest son, Reuben, finds some mandrakes and Rachel pounces. Mandrakes are thought to be a fertility enhancement in their culture. So you might look at this picture of a, man, of a mandrake plant and say, what? But here's what the roots look like. You can pinch and manipulate the mandrake root as it grows to create extremely humanoid forms. This picture is not an exaggeration. These are the most disgusting gnome-like plants. You can totally see why it was thought to be a powerful aphrodisiac and associated with fertility. If There's great pictures out on Google if you want to Google it. So Rachel bargains with Leah for the mandrakes. Rachel gets the mandrakes, and Rachel in turn allows Jacob to sleep with Leah. Leah takes the deal. She meets Jacob at the door and tells him she's hired him for the night. And that results in another pregnancy for her. She bears a fifth son and a sixth son and then a daughter named Dinah. Finally, Rachel conceives and bears a son whom she names Joseph, which means both take away and add. And she says, the Lord has taken away my shame. May he add more sons. But alas, she goes right back to being barren. But Jacob's indenture is definitely up, and he goes to Laban and asks to be set free with his wives and children. Laban, of course, has another bargain up his sleeve and says, oh, he'll pay whatever wages Jacob wants if Jacob will only stay, because his, his herds have been doing really well under Jacob. And Jacob, you know, does need something to support all these wives and kids. So he decides he's going to stay as long as he has some way of building his own wealth. And it's not just all funneling into Laban. So Jacob suggests that he and Laban divide the flocks between them. Jacob will take all the black sheep and all the speckled or streaked goats. And Jacob says, at the end of my time, I will leave and only take the black sheep and the goats that have white specks or stripes. Well, Laban thinks this is a great deal because most sheep in their herds are pure white and most of the goats in their herds are pure black. 
So what Laban doesn't know is that Jacob had a dream in which God said, look, Jacob, all the male goats that are mating are streaked, spotted, or speckled. This is because I have seen how Laban has been treating you. Jacob didn't pull this idea out of thin air. He's acting on a dream he had. So Laban and Jacob sealed the deal. And immediately Laban goes out to the flocks and gets all, all the black sheep and all the speckled goats that he already has, gives them to his own sons and sends his sons away with them so that Jacob quite literally starts with nothing. Jacob, of course, tries to take things into his own hands at this point. We've seen this before a time or two. He takes some dark branches and peels them so they're streaked and spotted and he puts them where the animals can see them as they mate. But he only does that if the animals that are mating are healthy and strong. So I wonder, who gets the credit in Jacob's mind when there suddenly seems to be a run on strong, healthy black sheep and white speckled goats? Who's getting the credit in Jacob's mind, God or Jacob? At any rate, the end result is that Jacob becomes very wealthy himself with a large household of slaves and flocks of sheep, goats. He's got camels and donkeys. Now remember Laban's sons who had been sent away with all of Laban's black sheep and speckled goats? Well, apparently their flocks were not faring nearly as well. And Laban's flocks of white sheep and black goats are not growing nearly as fast as they used to. Laban's sons are getting angry and restless, and Laban has started glowering at, Joseph, at Jacob. Jacob realizes his days are numbered. Laban is a dangerous man. And God tells Jacob it's time to leave and head back home. But Jacob knows he's not strong enough to fight Laban, and Laban will never let his daughters and grandkids leave. Jacob realizes he's going to have to sneak out with all these herds and wives and kids. So he calls Leah and Rachel out to the fields for a secret conference and tells them his plan. He tells them about the dream he had from God because he's a little bit worried they might run to daddy and tattle. He needs them fully committed to leaving. Well, the women surprise him. They are as bitter towards Laban as he is. You see, normally when a woman marries, the bride price that the groom pays would be given at least in part to the bride. But remember, no money exchanged hands at Rachel and Leah's marriages. Jacob paid those bride prices in blood, sweat, and tears by building up Laban's flocks and making Laban even wealthier than he already was. And the fact that Laban didn't share any of that with Rachel or Leah has not escaped their notice. So a plan is hatched. They wait until it's shearing time, and Laban is away for several days to supervise the shearing of his own flocks. And then Jacob and his entire household flee south across the Euphrates. Laban doesn't find out till three days later, and he is angry. He gathers his fighting men and pursues Jacob. But on the way, Laban has a dream in which God tells him he better leave Jacob alone. Laban finally catches up with Jacob in the mountains of Gilead, just east of the Jordan River. But he's got a real dilemma now because of God's warning to him not to harm Jacob. Of course, Jacob knows nothing about Laban's dream, so he's terrified when Laban rages at him. 
But then Laban says, I have the power to destroy you, but God warned me off in a dream. So now all I want is the household gods you stole from me. Well, Jacob has no idea what he's talking about. He says, I stole nothing. Search everywhere. And if you find your household gods in anyone's possession, that person shall be put to death. What a mess. Jacob doesn't realize that Rachel stole her father's household gods when they left Haran. Her father stomps through the camp, searching every tent. When he gets to Rachel's tent, Rachel is sitting on the household gods, hiding them with her skirts. And she tells her father she cannot stand up in his presence because she's having her period. And in that way, she deceives everyone, including Jacob. I don't know if you're keeping up with highlighting the different names of God as we go along, but I am. And I noticed something while pondering Rachel's attachment to these idols. Although both Leah and Rachel have given God credit over the years of, you know, every time they had a son born, it's interesting, I think, that the compiler of Genesis who is drawing from, from you know, both sources, both the source that uses Yahweh and the source that uses Elohim, he puts the word Yahweh in Leah's mouth each time she gives God praise. Rachel uses Elohim whenever she praises God after the birth of her maid sons. Elohim, you remember, can actually be translated God's or little g, God rather than capital G, God. And it's only after she herself bears her only son, Joseph, that she credits Yahweh. Until then, it's possible she's giving credit to these idols. Next week, it'll become significant that Rachel is primarily an idol worshiper and does not wholeheartedly accept Yahweh as God. So file that thought away for the moment. Meanwhile, Jacob is outraged that Laban is accusing him of theft and he raises a stink saying Laban is falsely accusing him when it is Laban who's been false all these years. And Jacob rightly says that if God hadn't been watching out for him, Laban would have sent him away with nothing, right? So at this point, Laban is losing face. So he proposes a settlement. He and Jacob agree to a boundary between them. And Jacob sets up a pillar and a cairn of smaller stones in a heap to mark their boundary. He and Laban name the stones Witness Heap. And the place is named Mizpah, which means watchtower. And Laban makes a solemn vow. May the Lord keep watch between you and me when we are away from each other. Do not mistreat my daughters or marry other wives, even if I'm not there to protect them, for God is our witness. Now, it's pretty interesting that the first part of this vow has become a popular lover's vow meant as a blessing. May the Lord watch between me and thee while we are apart. You see it on jewelry everywhere. But Laban meant it anything but a blessing. He meant it as a warning. He meant, don't you forget the Lord is keeping an eye on you, so you better behave. And Joseph swore an oath to this effect using a new name of God, the terror of Isaac. It's noteworthy that Jacob is allowed to name God here. Remember the last person was Hagar when she too was on the run. What does it say? that God is closest to those who are suffering the most and who are 
in the most danger, those who are the most alone, those on the run. The word terror here can mean fear, dread, shaking, awe, but it's almost always translated as terror, such a strange name. I wonder if this is how Isaac's childhood experience of being nearly sacrificed by his own father was passed down to Jacob and Esau. Was this name a result of his father's trauma? Or has Jacob chosen this name to emphasize to Laban that his God is fierce and not to be dealt with duplicitously? It's not explained, and this is the only place in the Bible this name of God is used. So early the next morning, Laban departs without his idols and without harming Jacob or taking back his daughters and grandchildren. Of course, as my mother used to say, there's no rest for the wicked. No sooner has Jacob escaped Laban than he's got to start worrying about meeting up with Esau. And we'll pick the story up there next week. We're going to break into our study, um, study groups now. And in the study guide, you'll find a table with no instructions. Uh, and, and, and I, um, I'm going to, it looks like this. And the first column will be kind of a little synopsis of each passage of this story. And I want you to reflect on the passage and, and try to strip out the things that are culture related, just that are the wrapping paper of the gift. You know, what's part, just part of the cultural norms of the time. And in the last column, put the actual underlying truth that is trying to be communicated. What's the gift itself? Why is this in the Bible? Why is it important to us? What's it telling us about God? What is it telling us about our relationships? What is Jacob supposed to be learning here? Why is, you know, this situation is clearly um, changing Jacob and and, and perfecting Jacob. And so I filled out the first one for you, just as an example. Jacob arrives, uh, arrives at the well, rolls that heavy stone away, and kisses Rachel. So the cultural part of this is, you know, aside from having to draw your own water, it's that a man would have a right to claim or kiss a woman without her consent. Maybe the kiss was a kiss in greeting, you know, like the Europeans do with a kiss on each cheek. Um, but it, and it's clearly unlikely that a single man could roll the stone away. The truth embedded in here is that God's timing is perfect. Rachel and Jacob meet at this well at that particular moment. And even if something seems impossible, it is possible if it's part of God's plan. And also, apparently, God cares who we marry. So um, I'm going to stop sharing uh, the screen here in a second. But first, I want to know, do you know, you can turn your audios all back on. Do you, does this make sense? Do you understand what you're supposed to do? Okay. Yep. Here we go. See you in 15 minutes. I think that we are all back, as far as I can tell. So um, talk to me a little bit about this. Tell me, did you get very far? What was this experience like? We decided we had more questions than answers. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about that. Um, a lot of it, we, we could get the cultural reference and we got what was going on, but what it has to do with us or what it says about God was a little difficult 
on some of them. Um, we did, we did um, go so far as to, I actually asked my daughter, who's a graduate from Liberty University, and she actually gave some insight in that Leah was actually the mother of Judah, who is actually the line of Christ. Right. And of course, we haven't gotten into that far yet with our Bible study, but um, it made sense to me that God knew what was going on ahead of time before any of this even happened. God knew that Jacob was going to have a son through Leah right. in order to, to, I mean, he knew where his lineage was coming from, you know. So it was like, was all this part of God's plan? You know, did it, it's just we had so many more questions. You know, the more we the more we talked about it, the more questions we had. Um, the only thing I could come up with that it said about God is that He's okay with polygamy. <laughs> <laughs> the the um uh what did what did the rest of you what did the other groups experience here? Did you what I mean? Clearly, this is what I'm trying to get you to do. Is I felt like by now you've got enough of the context of these stories to begin to understand what parts are just cultural, you know, and what parts you do need to look at. Um, and I found as I was going through the list that it was a, a lot of times it was helpful when I got to a box about where I wasn't sure why it was in the Bible. If I stepped back and answered that last question about what was Jacob supposed to be learning, you know, that was helpful. So uh, give me, give me, you know, you can pick any box and say whatever you want, but tell me something um, that you did put over in that third column, anywhere on the sheet. Well, we talked, one thing we talked about was uh, sort of the, the lesson of uh, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword, that uh, um, Jacob was the deceiver and then he got deceived. So. Yep. What else, guys? Um, we on the on the one about um, um, Laban switching brides uh, on wedding the wedding day. Um, we talked about well, sort of, you know, also also the idea that that um, the deceiver is now learning what it feels like to be the victim of deceit, um, but also that starts the story that comes later where you see. Leah naming her sons, um, and you realize those are the tribes of Israel, and that that Jacob's this is this is an etiology for Israel, the the the, the Israelites to see where they came from. Yes, indeed, it is. It it absolutely is, and it's interesting to know how flawed or how it was all originated this is this is not an immaculate conception right <laughs> mm -hmm. what else could well i thought i thought with leaving giving um leah to jacob first is maybe liam was actually kind of a good father sometimes because he knew leah like you know loved jacob and so he was like okay she loves him, so I'm going to do that. But it was probably more custom that the first oldest gets married first. But I just thought maybe I'd give him a break. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Julie said that in our group too. That that I mean, it was probably pretty obvious who loved who. 
in this triangle. Yeah. And that, and that maybe he just really wanted to do something nice for, for Leah, but he also got an advantage of it. And maybe, exactly. Maybe there really was something about Leah not being as attractive as Rachel, and maybe Laban figured, well, you know, Leah, this may be Leah's only chance to get married, so I'm going to sneak her in there and see that, see that she gets a husband. <laughs> what else did you all see in here? Uh, in there, where we talked about Leah is fertile, but Rachel is barren. Um, of course, the wrapping paper is that it's such a disgrace and, and sorrow for a woman to not be able to bear children. And the, um, the other side of the coin, though, is judging and condemning each other should be left up to God. We do not know what God has or has not done in someone's life. Absolutely. Or in their body. You know, so much shame still attaches to women nowadays for not being able to bear kids or, you know, you get left out because people are talking about their kids and you don't have anything to talk about. And, and there, and equally there's shame or pressure maybe put on people for, you know, wanting to be single or not wanting to have kids. Um, this is all, you know, all this cultural stuff we need to begin to learn to separate out from how God actually deals with us. So I'm in the last couple of minutes here, I'm going to share um, some of the things that, that I see in this story. Um, but the point that I want to make is I'd like you to begin, this is a tool for your backpack. I'd like you to begin to, re, to approach passages in scripture like this. So that you just pause for a second and think, now, what part of this is cultural? And what part of this is, is real underlying truth. And the more we travel through the Bible, the more you're going to understand the culture. And it'll be easier for you to pull the, those parts out, both the Old and New Testaments. So here's, here's, what, here's what I see. Um, where, Rachel, where Laban sells Rachel to Jacob for seven years labor, what I saw was Jacob learning to work for what he wants rather than trick somebody for it. When the brides are switched on the wedding night, um, as you guys pointed out, Jacob is learning what it's like to be tricked out of something that's really important to you. This is the first time he stood in Esau's shoes, right? When Laban sells Rachel to Jacob for seven more years labor, and Leah has exactly one week of monogamous marriage, to me, I think that's saying that God allows us and other people to make mistakes. Bad things do happen to good people. Leah is fertile, but Rachel is barren. God sees Leah's misery. And while I don't want to imply in any way that, you know, being barren is a punishment, which is clearly would go in this cultural part here. I do think the truth that they're trying to communicate to us in this story is that God has a way of making justice happen. That's, that's a perfect example of splitting out the cultural wrapping paper from what the truth is that they're trying to convey to you. 
when Rachel gives Jacob her maid and Leah does the same thing, to me, the point was God's not real concerned about all that. God hadn't got been out of shape over any of that so far. Uh, um, and so that, that makes me feel less likely to judge people, you know, on whatever I think is normal or appropriate. So then Rachel sells Leah a night with Jacob in exchange for those mandrakes. Uh, and this is a truth that we've seen over and over in these stories. People constantly try to take things in their own hands and manipulate God. That's the message here. And then all of the births are attributed to God or gods. Barrenness is viewed as a punishment of some sort. And the truth here is that our, us blaming God is not the point. The point is to walk with God through whatever the circumstances may be. We are to, the whole point of these stories, the big point is to trust God. Then there's that part about divination. And I, I stick that in there because we've seen it before with um, Abimelech and the Egyptian Pharaoh where, where God, they have their own little wise men and, and, and they can ask them, you know, what, does the, what do the gods want or what does God want? And, and divination is, is like that sort of thing. It's where you're not going to God, you're going to someone else who by hocus pocus or whatever means they have, re reading cards or reading tea leaves or something, tell you something that may well be true and may be exactly what God is saying. But God does, we're going to see, God doesn't like it, like you to triangulate like that. Okay. God wants to have a relationship with us. He doesn't want this triangulation to happen where you're coming through the back door and reading the tea leaves to find out what God wants. So then how there's, can I ask, how is that different from like casting lots or, or, um, you know, uh, drawing straws or whatever they, you know, so many things. Yes. Which we see in the Bible all the time. Right. And, yeah, and, and, and Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The way I would is express it is that when people are casting lots or putting something out and saying, Lord, what's the, what is, which way do you want us to go? They're asking God. Okay. When someone is doing divination, they are not asking God. See the difference? Aren't they also, deviation is also um, tied to idols too. So I think it's Liam showing how important those household idols were to him. That's right. So it's, that's not a perfect answer, but that's how I see the difference anyway. And we'll have more of this as we go along to kind of color, color those things in as we go along. So then Jacob's yeah. animal. Pardon? I'm sorry. Go ahead. Jacob's animal husbandry, you know, with the speckled sticks and everything. Um, to me, the, the actual message is that when we take things into our own hands like that, where God has said God is going to do something and then we help him along, we are not helping God. All we're doing is confusing ourselves. 
because when it when God does do what God says he's going to do, now we're left with a dilemma. Was it me who made that happen or was that God who made that happen? So it's just a way to confuse ourselves. So then Jacob sneaks out of Haran. Rachel steals the household hold idols. Um, and and um, I, I think that in this one where, where I went with this was when Jacob, you know, found, when Laban accused Jacob of this theft, Jacob says, well, I'll just kill whoever does that did that, you know, and I think that we do that to people a lot. We make up rules. We make up rules that say, if somebody does such and such, they're going to be punished like this. And those kind of rules, I don't think yield justice. And we need to be leaving ourselves open for justice. And it, it takes me back to something I learned from my, from my pastor that I carry in my heart. And that is people are more important than programs. Always. Laws set up programs that are more important than people. And injustice happens. So then Laban pursues Jacob going to kill him and, and is warned off by God in a dream. And we've seen several of these, you know, protagonists warned off by God in a dream. The message there is God can reach anyone with any message he wants to give them as specifically as he needs to make it. We don't need to worry about that part. God can do this. God can communicate. And lastly, Laban and Jacob set up a boundary marker, swear, you know, that um, they, their gods will be, be watching each other. Um, and I think that the point here is that God is present. Whether you believe in him or not. And these are not the only things, you know, to draw out of this story. But, but if you kind of look at passages in this light, you're far less likely to be tripped up by people who pull a passage out of context and try to make you do something yourself or to someone else. And the passages, if you can do this kind of parsing, the passages will begin to reflect common themes. They will, you will start to see the same themes, the same points over and over and over in scripture. And, and that's what you're looking for. As we're going through, we are trying to find the big basic themes where we can take a stand, where we know this is truth. This is how God is, no matter what the culture's like. You see? And so we're um, to the end uh, of our time. But uh, if you have questions or comments, feel free. Also, if, it's, if you need to drop off, feel free. I, as usual, I will stay for a few minutes um, and talk. 
I was really, I found it really interesting, um, the boundary markers and all that other stuff. You know, it means that thousands, thousands of years ago, we were already making boundaries. Um, you know, uh, I guess we've always heard that good fences make good neighbors. <laughs> and so I think that's what, uh, uh, that was the, you know, what, what, what the, uh, uh, the, the physical thing was that, uh, yeah, the culture, that was the culture, uh, which I thought was very interesting. Uh, but my, my takeaway from that was uh, just as God has boundaries for us, we should have boundaries with our fellow man. Uh, I said that Jacob needs or will serve his, sever his ties with Laban because of Laban's crooked ways, which will affect Jacob in the long run. Um, that was my takeaway on, on that particular section. Very interesting. Um, I, I, I was reading um, also out of the, the New Oxford Annotated Bible, because um, I love reading the footnotes when I'm reading the passages. And um, it was talking about the boundary covenant. Um, it said that it's built around an older tradition regarding a boundary covenant between Arameans and Israelites. Interesting. And, and, and Laban was an Aramean. That whole, that area from where he's from is, is Aramean, Aram. Yeah. So, so I'm wondering if that, again, is one of those, those passages where it's sort of explanatory um, to help the listeners of the stories to go, oh, that's why we have this, this boundary between these lands. Yes. And this goes absolutely. back to, this goes back to Laban and, and Jacob. Yes. Yes, you can see how all these stories are very rooted in ethnicity and nationality, right? That, mm -hmm. that all of these things have repercussions later on. And so it's important to, to the, it, it has been important to them to record these stories to, main, to maintain that history and that context for themselves. And this was back when they didn't have word processors, you know? Um, they, it was a real effort to record these stories. It was a big deal and expensive to do it. But it was that important, right? I have a side note, although I missed the whole presentation due to my meeting. Um, one thing that caught my attention when I was reading the thing about the goats and the sheep and how they were um, sorted and then along with the daughters and the grandchildren and the flocks being taken in the night and that upsetting her father was years ago I did a case um, with my attorneys that it was an Islamic case, we had, we had agreed to be bound by Islamic rule, and the concept was rasib. And in Islamic rule, there is no such thing as interest. But if you take someone's sheep, and they later find out about it, you're entitled to the sheep and its offspring, which sounds like interest to me, but they don't have interest. Um, but I had to do, and this isn't a post 9-11 world, I had to do a lot of internet research on 
concepts of the Sharia law, and it had to do with how did you take the sheet?